Please join me once again in prayer. Father, we come to you as your people in Christ. Lord, we thank you uh, that we can gather together, worship you, and celebrate what you've done for us, that, that no matter how bad our week might have been, Lord, we come richly blessed in Christ, that, that we have a standing before you that we never could have dreamed would happen apart from Christ. We do not deserve it. Lord, you have blessed us richly in him, so we thank you for that. Lord, we, we ask that you would be with us as we learn together from your word. Lord, we also ask you would bless other congregations that are uh, coming to you right now in that same way. Lord, as Keith preaches at his brother's church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Lord, we pray that you would be using your word to uh, create life in that congregation. Lord, we thank you for his gifting and preaching. Lord, we pray you would use that time there to gather your church together. We pray that people would be converted to understand you for the first time. Lord, we pray that you would give him freedom and insight to apply your word, particularly to that congregation. Lord, we also pray for Steve Unthink as he preaches at uh, Trinity Community Church. Lord, we thank you for him and how his gifts will uh, serve our church as you have, uh, you have ordered things. But Lord, we also pray that you would minister and care for that congregation. And even as he is preaching uh, your word, Lord, we pray that, that in that act of preaching, you would be causing, uh, raising up people who would take his place in some of the various ministries that he was doing there. Lord, we pray you would bring life through your word to, uh, to that congregation. Lord, we also pray that you would help us. Uh, we need your spirit to help us. Without your spirit, your word has no power, no life. Because, not because it has no power, but because we are dead to it. So, Lord, we pray that your spirit would make us alive, that we may see the beauty and wonder of your grace and kindness to us in Christ and respond in faith and repentance, trusting in you and walking in obedience to you. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are going to look today uh, at a story in the Bible that's that's exciting, it's interesting. The story is about a controlling mother-in-law, a brave and noble young woman, and an exceptionally honorable man. And they have much to teach us about wisdom, about marriage, about life, about love. And they teach this to us because they are thrown together in what seems to be a really sticky situation. Now, you can probably relate in some level. Ever been in a sticky situation? Perhaps over the holidays. Uh, perhaps with family. Perhaps with in-laws. Perhaps you've been in the place where you feel like one person wants you to do this, but somebody else doesn't want you to do that. And you can't do this, or you offend this person and that, you'll offend that person. And there's no good option. Uh, maybe you feel even pressure to do something that would be against God's law. And you can't figure out a way to get out of it without costing the relationship. And you really feel like that's a horrible price to pay. Well, we've, we can relate to sticky situations, difficult situations. Uh, what we see in the characters in this story is that they navigate it beautifully. And for a minute, it looks like there's, there's no good way out of this thing. It's going to end in a train wreck. And yet it turns out beautiful. How do they do that? Well, the Bible's answer to that is wisdom. Wisdom. Wisdom in the Bible is the skill of living. It's not just memorizing facts and knowing the commands of God. It's rather about being able to draw on the facts that you need for the moment and understanding which commands of the Bible apply to you at which times. 
Wisdom is not just about doing the right thing. It's about doing the beautiful thing, doing the thing that, that lives in a way that blesses other people. Now, our modern world is not typically set us up to excel in wisdom. T.S. Eliot put it this way. He said, he asked the question, where is the wisdom that we have lost in knowledge? And where is the knowledge that we have lost in information? Got to think about that quote for a while. I'll give it to you anyway for your own meditation. We live in an information age, don't we? I mean, I could call up more information on this smartphone than many scholars had available to them for their entire lives. Uh, we, we have tons of information. But see, wisdom isn't just about having that information on hand. It's about knowing which information applies in a situation and being able to relate that information from one category, one sphere of reality, to another category, another sphere of reality. The wise person feels the weight of God, the weight of God's character and the weight of God's law. The wise person loves others and does what is best for others in the long haul. The opposite of wisdom is foolishness. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool lives as if God's rules and God's word are not important. The fool cares only about himself or herself and asks, what is good for me? And only asks that in the immediate future, what is good for me now? The fool can take a situation that is perfectly straightforward, perfectly clear, and make a complete mess out of it. The wise person can take a sticky situation, like we're going to see here. Potholes, potential for disasters everywhere, and yet they can live in a way that is beautiful. Now, sometimes that beauty is not always seen by everybody at the time. In fact, the wise person is one who's willing to disappoint others. But it will be seen in years to come and decades, and for all eternity. Friends, do you have wisdom? Are you wise? Are you growing in wisdom? Well, the good news for us is that the Bible tells us, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. God is the giver of wisdom. And if we find ourselves in need of wisdom, in lack of wisdom, we come to God. God gives us wisdom through his word, through the community of believers, we become wise by hanging out with wise people. Wisdom is more caught than taught. You see, you can't just get it by a dispensing of information. Well, we have an opportunity to learn, to to catch wisdom by hanging around some really wise characters in in Ruth chapter 3. These are wise people. And if we spend some time with them, we learn from them, we will grow in wisdom. Well, turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Ruth chapter 3. I believe it's on page 223 in the Pew Bibles, or the ones you might have purchased on the the side overflow area. And as you're turning there, let me just catch you up so you understand what happened, in case you missed a couple weeks, or if it's your first time here. So we're looking at the book of Ruth, and this is a book that happened at the same time of the Judges. We looked at Judges just before that. And it centers around one family, a woman married to a man named Elimelech. They have two sons. They're living in Bethlehem. Well, Bethlehem, the the name that means land of bread, actually runs out of food. So they go to live in Moab. And now the years there for this family were marked by tragedy. Because first Naomi's husband dies, and, and then her sons die. But before they die, they marry Moabite women which was not necessarily a positive thing in their eyes. Moabite women were not well looked upon. 
So in the end of the day, Naomi here is left all alone with these two Moabite women. One of the women decides to return to her family. The other woman, Ruth, swears that she will stay with Naomi, and they go to Bethlehem together. In Bethlehem, Ruth, the daughter-in-law, the Moabitess, meets a man who is a relative of her husband's, and this man, named Boaz, treats her with exceptional kindness. And because he is a relative, he would have opportunity and even some obligation to help them out. So that's the background. And in this passage that we're going to look at today, we see Ruth asking Boaz for help. So we pick up the story in Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, that is Ruth, so this is Naomi, the woman, older woman, talking to Ruth, the younger daughter-in-law. She says this, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe, literally in Hebrew that's know, know the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk his heart, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lie at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in which you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain here tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until morning. But he arose before one could recognize another. Um, but, but, but she arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment that you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it it on her. Then she went to the city. And when she had come to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then he told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Interesting story, don't you think? One that probably leaves you with more questions than answers. Chief among them is what really happened on that threshing floor, right? One piece of information that you need to know that actually makes the story more difficult is that the threshing floor is known as the place where lots of dishonorable acts were committed. The work at the threshing floor 
since they were working at the threshing floor there, that meant that harvest time was just about finished. Right? They, they brought in all the harvest. Now it's just the, the threshing, the, the winnowing, all the really hard work is done. And, and they're now in the place where they're going to party. They're excited. They, they've got over the hard part, and there's a good crop that's come in, so they're going to party, and that usually meant lots of drinking, and the men would be away from their families, so prostitutes would go to the threshing floor. Scandalous things would happen at the threshing floor. If you had a teenage daughter and she was getting dressed up and going out and heading for the threshing floor, you would say, not over my dead body, right? That's not going to happen. So that makes it difficult. Why are Ruth and Boaz two honorable people, worthy people, at the threshing floor? Well, why Boaz is there is pretty easy to answer because he's the owner of this field and it would be normal for the owner uh, to stay there to really guard the, the product, the, the crop that he just brought in so that it wouldn't get stolen. That makes sense. Why Ruth is there is a bit harder to explain. Uh, we see here in the passage that it's clear her being there has the potential to ruin her reputation. Boaz, when he sends her out before one could recognize another, says, let it not be said that a woman was at the threshing floor. So it's clear her, her presence there is potentially scandalous. Naomi tells her daughter to get all dressed up, put on perfume, go down to the threshing floor, uncover his feet, lay beside him, and await further instructions. And, and actually, uh, as, as odd as that, uh, those instructions are, you have to realize that in Hebrew, they all have kind of double meanings. Most of those words do. It's filled with innuendo. Know the place where he lays, lie down next to him, uncover his feet. These words could be taken straightforward, literally, or they could have sexual connotations. This, this really could just as easily be a description of what a prostitute would do to drum up some business. So what is Naomi telling her daughter to do? Well, let me preface this by saying this is a difficult passage, and I'm only about 75% sure that my interpretation is correct. So I'm going to give you what I think is the most logical meaning here, but I'll, that's not you know, without some difficulty in my mind as far as that meaning. And you might come up with something different. That's okay. I think all the application that I tell you will be true. But uh, it's a hard passage to interpret. My best guess here, and commentators that I've read agree, so it's not just in my own mind, uh, is that Naomi is, in fact, trying to get Ruth to seduce Boaz. I think that she would like to see a pregnancy which would force a marriage that would be in the best interest of Naomi, given that Boaz is a relative. You see, if, if Ruth marries Boaz, then her descendants will count as if they were her dead husband's descendants, and then Naomi will be, in some sense, a grandmother. She, she will have the descendants that will mean that her name will continue, and she will have people to provide for her as she gets older. I think here that Naomi understands Ruth's marriage possibilities are wide open. Boaz says that much when he says, you didn't run with the young men, rich or poor. Uh, Ruth here is a young, attractive, hardworking woman. Any number of men would be happy to marry her, and she would be just fine. I think that's what Boaz is saying here. Now, why does she have to get married? Well, we've said before that uh, in the ancient world, women really, to get provided for, needed to be married, to have children, they would be the security. So Ruth, it is in her best interest to get married. Uh, that's, that's clear. But, but her marrying Boaz is likely in the best interest of Naomi because that's the marriage situation that will benefit Naomi. And Boaz understands that. That's why he says to Ruth, after she 
she asks him to spread her garment, his garment over her, he, she said, or Boaz says, you have made this last act of kindness greater than the first. Now, now what does he mean there? Well, I think that the act of kindness that he's referring there, the first act of kindness, is when, when Ruth said, I will stay with you to Naomi and didn't leave her. Ruth is very kind to Naomi. The second act of kindness, I believe, is Ruth marrying somebody who will be in the best interest of Naomi. Uh, Boaz is saying there, you're a very kind and loyal person to Naomi. Boaz recognizes that this plan has uh, Naomi's fingerprints written on it. All that means to say that I don't think Naomi's uh, telling her daughter to go down to the threshing uh, floor in this manner is really in the best interests of Ruth. I, I think... I think she's being somewhat manipulative here. You see that in the beginning. So, it's good for you to have rest. Oh, look, here's this relative. Why don't you go down to the threshold? I think she's manipulating the situation there. Another factor to consider is the history of Ruth's people. Ruth is a Moabite. She's not an Israelite. She's from the country of Moab. Now, I won't read the passage, but Genesis 19 gives us the origin of the Moabites. And, friends, it's not a happy story. Lot had, was a man who had two daughters. The three of them, Lot and his daughters, survived the destruction of, of Sodom, but then they're all alone. And the daughters are worried that they won't have any children to provide for them. So they decide to get their father really, really drunk and then disguise themselves and seduce him. And uh, the father doesn't remember anything that happened, but out from that comes children. One of the children's name is Moab, and from thence comes the Moabite people. So, so they do not have a good origin here. And then on top of that, Numbers chapter 25 describes uh, a scene where the Moabite woman, uh, women seduce the Israelite men. So given all that, perhaps Naomi is telling Ruth, you go and be the Moabitess and, and do what Moabite people do. I, the, the parallels between the instructions that Naomi gives Ruth and Genesis 19 seem to be too close to be accidental. Anyway, that's my understanding of the passage. We could talk about it, but I think that makes sense out of all the details. So when Ruth goes out in the middle of the night wearing perfume and her best clothes, I think we're supposed to worry. I think we're to think she's going to the threshing floor. Uh, this, this is not going to end well. But what happens? Does it end in the train wreck that we fear? Well, let's see. Ruth follows Naomi's directions up to a point. She uncovers his feet, and he wakes up, probably because he's cold. And then we see the whole thing from Boaz's perspective. He wakes up, and it says, Behold, a woman. Literally, in the, the Hebrew, that's what it says. But, well, there's a woman here. To put it crassly, it's sort of like a man waking up at a hotel room and in the middle of the night, and there's a woman lying next to him. A young, beautiful, sweet-smelling woman in bed. If that's a movie, you think the next scene is probably going to be one you're going to fast forward. It's not going to be honorable, right? But notice what happens. Naomi had told Ruth, wait for his instructions and then do whatever he tells you to do. But, but notice here, uh, Boaz doesn't give her instructions. Instead, he asks for her name. What is your name? Who are you? Now, I admit I might be reading too much into this, but I think we see evidence there that that Boaz is being a worthy man. Because if he asks for her name, he doesn't see this woman as simply an object. He sees her as a person. Even before he knows that it's Ruth, he sees her as a person. That's why he's a worthy man. 
Let me just say as a brief aside here, I think if I'm right in that, there's something we can learn from this. We, we get things like this happen. You're, you're innocently going about your day, and then a, a catalog shows up in the mail, right? Or, or something pops up on your computer screen. You get an email, and it takes you to some place, and you see things that, that at the very least tempt you to look at somebody as simply an object. Well, well one of the things that we need to realize there is that People are not just objects. The essence of lust is to, to look at someone as if they're only you know, a body. The way to fight that is to realize God hasn't made people just a body. God has made people, uh, a whole person. And whoever is there on your computer screen or in the mail catalog, he or she is a living soul before God, has a family, has somebody who's probably quite disappointed that that person is posing in that way. So if you see an image and you just can't get it out of your head, you're you're looking at that person as if they're simply a body, pray for that person. Pray that he or she would come to know Christ. It's a lot harder to lust at something when you're actually thinking of that person as a person made in the image of God to know God. That's a way you can really follow Boaz's example there. So Boaz, I think here, is acting more honorably than Naomi had expected because he doesn't just... Uh, give Ruth instructions, whatever they might be. No, he speaks to her. He speaks to her as a person. Ruth, I think, is also acting more honorable than Naomi would give her credit for because she has no intention of manipulating Boaz to get what she wants. Instead, she comes right out and she says her intentions. She answers Boaz, I am Ruth. Spread your wing over me. What in the world does that mean? Is he an angel? (laughs) He has a wing? Uh, Maybe a part of an airplane there? No. No, it's customary back then to symbolize engagement by spreading a corner of your garment over somebody. Ezekiel 16, God says to the nation of Israel, When I passed by you again and saw, behold, you were at the age for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you. Spreading the garment over somebody is symbolizing that you're taking that person under your protection. Basically, she is asking him, propose to me. Take me as your wife. Now, I really like, though, that the ESV translate this wing. I think they're the only major translation that does that. Because it, it ties her request back to something that Ruth, that, or sorry, that Naomi, get it right this time, Boaz had said to her the chapter before. Boaz understood Ruth's coming to Israel as Ruth taking refuge under God's wing. Remember that? That was a beautiful picture of the fact that, yeah, for a little bird, it'd be dangerous out there. Under the, the mama's wing, though, it's safe. Boaz understood Ruth as coming under God's protection. Here, Ruth is picking up on that same imagery because the word can be translated garment or wing. And Ruth is saying, Boaz, be that protection for me. Be some of God's protection over my life. And he agrees. All that you ask, I will do for you. Now, even though this plan for their marriage seems to be concocted by Naomi for Naomi's benefit... Ruth and Boaz don't appear to object in it in the least. In fact, every indication is they actually like it. It truly is a love story. He, as we find out, greatly respects her. It's a relationship founded on respect. He was impressed by her act of loyalty to her mother-in-law back in the last chapter, and he's impressed even more by her act of loyalty now. He probably thinks to himself... The way she's showing loyalty to her mother-in-law, and if we're understanding her right, she wasn't always the easiest person to love. 
if, he, if she's showing that loyalty to her, she'll be a great person to be with. She'll be loyal, faithful, and kind. And Boaz uses the exact same word, worthy, to describe Ruth that earlier had been used to describe Boaz. When we're introduced to Boaz, he's a worthy man. And then Boaz says to Ruth, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do all that you ask. For my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Same word. There's no obligation for Boaz to marry Ruth. He is a redeemer, but not the kind that would require marriage. And yet, he enters into it freely. He wants to. He seems to like her and enter into this. Ruth, it appears, had uh, her prospects for marriage were wide open as well. She didn't have to marry this person. But she seems just blown over by his kindness to her. He, he, she's impressed by him, likes him, and probably thinks this is the kind of guy I'd like to spend my life with. Now, just to understand their relationship better, think about the way some other people relate. There are a kind of people, I, I've seen couples like this, and the, the reason why they're together is that they're both self-absorbed people. Ever, ever see this? Where, uh, one, where each person really just likes themselves and likes the other person because that person likes them. And, and they, they, their self-absorption fuels this infatuation that's ultimately built on nothing more than their own pride. Have you seen relationships like that? Maybe you've been in a relationship like that. You know it's not going to end well. Here we see just the opposite with Ruth and Boaz. What they value in each other isn't just the affection one has for another, but they value their character. Boaz sees the kindness not of Ruth, not first to Boaz, but to her mother-in-law. And, and Ruth sees that Boaz is kind to her even before she could think that he would have any intentions. He's a good, worthy man. And friends, that's why this is a beautiful love story. So what can we learn from this? We said before that, that this story is, gives us wisdom. What can we learn from this? Well, first, I'll give you three things, and just brief. We've already spent a long time just looking at the story. But that's okay, because it's a beautiful story, and there's something to be learned just by appreciating the story. So uh, we, we should appreciate the beauty of it. I've heard this passage preached on from time to time, and sometimes it's given as just sort of advice for single people. Uh, here's what you should do. Uh, I think that's a bit of a stretch, number one, because I don't think Naomi is being a great example of a parent here. Number two, the situation is so unique that, that very little directly applies from it. What are you going to say to, the, the, to get dressed up, go to the threshing floor? You, you don't want to say that. So it's, it's not at all you know, something that you can follow, literally. But... Even if it were, even if we could follow the examples of it, we we should not just reduce this to a good example to follow. Because we should see first the beauty of this story and just appreciate it as something beautiful. See, the Bible wants to give us wisdom, not by just saying, okay, do this, do this, do this, but actually opening our mind up to see what real beauty is. See, that's our problem. We think what is Beautiful is not really beautiful, and we don't see what is beautiful as truly beautiful. So this story, in its beauty, helps retool our mind, that we would have a clear understanding of what beauty is. That's why it's okay we've spent most of the time for the sermon just talking about the story, because I hope that you see that it is beautiful, and that captures, that beauty captures your attention. The, the romantic element, the, the love story in this, is also beautiful. I think everybody would agree that there's something beautiful about a love story, isn't there? 
mean, that's, if you don't agree, you have to reckon with the fact that millions and millions of books and movies or TV shows are sold and, and they're love stories and people love them. Yeah, some of them are cheesy. Some of them turn it you know, sexual and, and mess it all up. But, but that romance theme wouldn't capture the hearts of so many people if there wasn't something inherently beautiful about it. Do you know why it's beautiful? It's beautiful because God created it. It began in the garden. God created the first man, but he said it's not good that he be alone, so he made a woman that was suitable for him, and he put them together. The two became one. That drama of the two becoming one is something that God created, and it's beautiful because he created it as beautiful. It didn't originate with Jane Austen or Hollywood. God made it. That's why it's beautiful. So when I watch a movie that has romance as a central theme, I take pleasure from the fact that even if the writer and director had no intention of giving God any glory through this, it actually does bring God's glory. Because the story is something that that is set to a plot that God created. And it's beautiful because of his creation. Do you know why God invented the love story and made it beautiful? Well, if he did it simply for the beauty of it, well, that would be enough. But actually, he had a higher purpose. It was so that it would be a picture of his love for his people. Over and over again in the Bible, God is described as the husband wanting to be united to his people. We read from Ezekiel 16, God is the one who who brings the people to himself. However, if we read that passage further, I encourage you to look at it. Sadly, the people don't want a relationship with God. They reject him. They spurn him. They don't want to be loyal to him. They go after other lovers, the Bible says. And then what happens? God comes down in human form. We celebrate that around Christmas, the incarnation, him taking on human flesh. He becomes like us, and then he dies on the cross to take the penalty for that sin of rejecting him. And then he rises from the dead to create, in us, to create us as a new people that he could be united to. The Bible says he is one spirit with them. John the Baptist, when he he looks at Jesus, he says, He is the bridegroom who has come for his bride. At the end of Revelation, John sees the people of God as a a bride dressed in white, prepared for his husband. See, this this love story, this two becoming one, is, is a picture of the ultimate uniting of God with people. Him bringing his people into a close, intimate relationship with himself. The story of the, the, the love story of the two becoming one on earth is a picture, a foretaste of that even greater story. Do you know that story? Do you know that greater bridegroom who searches for his bride, who overcomes the barriers to bring them to himself? Well, friends, if not, you, you need to. You need to know that in Christ. That's, that's the only way that you'll have life. That's the only way that any other story is going to make any sense. Now, I know some people here have not experienced great beauty in their earthly relationships. Well, let me encourage you two things. One, if you know Christ and you're one spirit with him, then you have the greater reality. And if you're missing the shadow, you're not going to, in the end, be disappointed. That said, don't give up on what the love story actually is. God says it is beautiful. He gives us beautiful examples of it in Scripture. So even if your experience has not been positive, don't let that outweigh what is clearly in God's Word, that it is beautiful. Pray for the other couples in the church. Encourage them. Delight in it, even if you don't experience the beauty of it. 
It's beautiful because God says it's beautiful, and you can delight in that even if you haven't experienced it. And friends, if you haven't experienced it, you will experience something even greater in Christ anyway. So we must see its beauty. Second, second lesson in wisdom here is we must develop good character. The book of Ruth is called, I think you could classify it as wisdom literature. Let me hurry this up here. I'll skip a section and tell you that, that in the book of Ruth here, uh, she's called a worthy woman. That's a tie-in with the book of Proverbs. And so in the Hebrew Bible, the, the book of Ruth actually comes right after the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs ends with Proverbs 31, which is a passage about the excellent wife. You may have remembered it. That word excellent is the same word here for worthy. So I'm not sure if, if the book of Ruth is uh, quoting Proverbs or Proverbs is referring back to Ruth. Either way, the Holy Spirit wants to connect those two. The Holy Spirit wants to connect Proverbs 31 and the book of Ruth and give you the book of Ruth as an example. Here's what an excellent woman looks like. So, so we should see that there. And what, what makes Ruth wise? It's, it's the character that she has. We said before that wisdom is bringing things together. Foolishness is separating them. What, is, what do we see here being brought together? What we see is that the, the reason why that these two people are attracted to one another has to do with their character, right? The world today separates that. It makes attraction something purely physical. The Bible brings character and attraction together. So, so think about uh, the book of Song of Solomon. We see that book, it talks a lot about physical beauty, lots about attraction, but it never separates the physical appearance of the people described from their character. So in the very beginning, we read, let him kiss me with the kisses of, my, of his mouth. And then it says, for your name is like fine oil. What is he doing there? He's taking the, the physical experience and linking it to the man's character. Later on, the man says to the woman about you know, praising her. her she, she's beautiful and talks about her features as beautiful. And then he says, and, and your neck is like a strong tower. What does that mean? Oh, my, you have a neck like a giraffe? No, no. It's a symbol for her character as strong. See, there, if you read the book of Song of Solomon with a good commentary that'll tell you what the language means, and you'll see back and forth between physical beauty and moral character wed together. They're not separated. That's wisdom. And that's what Ruth is doing. By, by liking this guy, and that's what Boaz is doing, by liking this girl for their character, for who they are as people. And they don't separate that out. Friends, we, we live in a world where foolishness is sold to us. We're told to separate it. We must resist that by clinging to what the Bible says. So if you're single, you should cultivate attraction, not just for a physical appearance, but for godliness in a future spouse. Just don't have a physical idea of what they would look like. Have a view of their godly character that you would want. And don't just look for that godly character in somebody else. No, you try to aspire to have that godly character so that you would be the kind of person that the kind of person you would want to marry would also want to marry. Both Ruth and Boaz were attracted to each other because they knew they were worthy and kind. If you want to be with somebody who is worthy and kind, then be worthy and kind yourself. But don't just do it so that you can find somebody or that blows the whole thing. Do it because God thinks it's beautiful. 
And friends, if you are married, cultivate an attraction to your spouse, not only for their physical characteristics, but for their godliness. And then also try to cultivate that godliness in your spouse. Sometimes people give the advice that you should never try to change your spouse, but friends, I think that's actually wrong. You should try to change them. You should try to make them more godly, not according to your own agenda, but by living with them in an understanding way and bringing scripture to bear and living a godly example. Husbands are particularly commanded to wash their wives with the pure water of the word. You should try to cultivate faith and love in your spouse. Pray for them. Encourage them. Try to set up a context where they can grow. Friends, are you, are you doing that? That's what we need to be doing. We need to, as a church, we live in a world that gives us the exact opposite message in these things. We need to take our stand strongly on Scripture, founded on a biblical worldview, and live wise, beautiful lives based on the principles God has given us. The third lesson we see here is to fear God. The first is that we should enjoy the beauty of this passage. The second is that we should have the the good character that these people have. The third is that we should fear God. See, we said that the reason why Ruth and Boaz create something wonderful in the midst of a context that could be potentially disastrous is that they have wisdom. And the secret to them living well is wisdom. What is the secret to wisdom? Fearing God. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear here doesn't mean dread. It means the sense of understanding that God is more important than anything else. God is weightier. God is more awesome. God is of greater consequence than anything that we could experience on earth, any other human relationship. Boaz, we know, feared God. There's a little clue in chapter 2. When he comes back from Bethlehem to meet his men, he says, the Lord be with you. And then they answer, the Lord bless you. And in this story, all the details matter. That's a clue to say, look, here's a guy who knows the Lord. The reason why he's a worthy man is that he knows the Lord. He fears the Lord. The Lord has weight in his life. And then Boaz interprets the events in Ruth's life in light of the strong hand of the Lord. The word he uses to praise Ruth for her kindness is the word he uses to praise God for his kindness. God is kind. And and Boaz says, I recognize that kindness in Ruth. You see, everything has theological meaning for Boaz. He recognizes God's hand everywhere. He interprets people, he interprets events in light of what God is doing. God has weight in his life. And that's why he didn't take advantage of the situation when he found a young woman lying next to him on the threshing floor. Even if no one on earth was watching, he knew that God was watching. And it was God's eyes that mattered most. Somewhere along the way, it seems that Ruth also learned about this God. My best guess is that it wasn't through Naomi, but it was through Boaz. Maybe after the meal that they had, we looked at in the last chapter, Ruth came to Boaz and said, Explain to me more about this God under whose wings I come for refuge. And she is a worthy woman. She knows God and she knows his law, which is why she doesn't compromise or try to manipulate the situation. Look at her in contrast to Naomi, who's Naomi kind of sees God hand at work, and then she's like, okay, God, I'll take over from here. I know how to work this and play this. Naomi trusts God. What about you? Do you fear God? Again, I don't mean the sense of dread. I mean that his character and his rules loom large in our lives. You need to know that when no one else sees you, God sees you. And it is his eyes that matter most. It's been said that who you are when no one is looking 
That is who you are before God and nothing more. Who you are in your innermost thoughts and feelings. What you dream about, what you want, what you think about. That is before God. Does, does his character bear, have bearing on your life in those moments? There's friends, there's one more thing we have to say. Relate this to what we said earlier in the, the sermon. If you're going to fear God, if you're going to live in light of God, you have to know about Jesus. You have to know about that love story that we talked about earlier. Because without that, if it's just God's holiness that we live before, we're going to live in fear and dread. Because we know at the end of the day that we don't measure up. We don't stand before him. And we can't stand before him and live. Because he is so holy. His holiness is perfect. However... He has sent his son to take on the weight of our sin, to take that punishment for us. So therefore, when we stand before him, we can stand before him clothed in Christ, covered in Christ. His his wrath is not something we fear, even though we deserve it, because Christ has taken us in that place. And therefore, what we see of God is his his glorious character, his mighty works, that inspires us, not out of a sense of dread, oh no, he's going to squash me, but a sense of appreciating the greatness of his majesty. And then we can live with the proper fear of God. The fear of God that doesn't fear punishment, but the fear of God that lives in all of him, wanting him more and more to have bearing in our lives. And then we can live like Naomi, or like, rather, Ruth and Boaz lived, trusting him and following him. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this beautiful story. Lord, we pray that you would write its meaning on our hearts. Cause us to fear you, not in the sense of dread because of Christ, but in the sense of awe and wonder, celebrating Christ even more because we know your character, we know what we deserve, and yet we know how kind and loving you have treated us in Christ. Lord, we want to grow in wisdom. We want your character have weight in our lives, have bearing down on our lives, that we may live in a way that is pleasing to you, pleasing in your eyes. Lord, your eyes are what matter most. Drill that into our heads that we would really believe it and live like that. Lord, help us. Help those particularly who are struggling with a very difficult situation. They've got tough things to say to somebody. They they, they don't know how it's going to go. It's prone to misunderstanding. Lord, we pray for those members among us who have that particularly feel in the grip of something, that you would give them wisdom. Give them the fear of you, to fear you more than they fear anyone else and then be able to live in a way that is honoring to you and loving to others. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.